Did you ever think you would make it? I feel I'm so close, I could take sweet victory. I know this life meant for me. Yeah, why would you bet on Goliath when we got bet David? Value payment, giving values contagious. This world of entrepreneurs, we get no value to haters. How they run, homie, look what I become. I'm the, I'm the one. Strike. And so I went on a pudding strike. Oh, nice. So, so folks, I don't, I don't know if you heard that or not. There's a <laughs> major amazing, pudding yeah. strike going on that we're going to talk about. But today's guests, they're kind of a big deal, both of them. You know, we, I had a chance to communicate. Buck and I were going back and forth, and then we had a chance to uh, be on the show. And then, uh, you know, you guys have you've been around the block for a while. Your name is everywhere. Everyone knows the Buck Sexton, you know, Clay Travis. Clay Travis and the Buck Sexton Show, whether it's sports, whether it's politics, whether it's boobs, whether it's LeBron, <laughs> there's a lot of different things going on out I'm there. I'm an expert. expert. You're an expert. Yeah, I like to think. And uh, Buck, you being a CIA agent, this by the way, we just broke a record. First time in a week, we've had two CIA, two of them, former yeah. CIA officers. We had a um, Mike, Mike Baker, Baker on. My yeah. man, I saw Mike. I did Gutfeld show with him last week. Did you? Mike and I go way back. Yes. Mike yeah. stud, full on. Yeah. Mike stud. is a interesting, fun guy when he comes here. But today's about you guys. Appreciate you guys for coming out. Thank and being you for on the show. Us. So, Clay, uh, uh, you know, for, for some of the folks, obviously we got stories to get into. You saw what Musk did with BBC, destroyed him, and where he started interviewing the other guy. We got stats that came out from New York City, uh, a poll talking about 27% of people living in New York want to leave New York. I want to get your feedback because you lived in New York before. We got some other things going on with this guy named, I don't know if you guys are following this one guy named Joe Biden. <laughs> he's, uh, he's always <laughs> saying stuff that we have to cover. France is kind of talking about the fact that the Europe, Europe's got to stop relying so much on America. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Maybe we're financing everything they're doing. We can talk about that as well. California's on the edge after tech layoffs and studio cutbacks. NPR quits Twitter. Lots of people were uh, heartbroken last night when that announcement was made. <laughs> Popovich wants gun control. Cruz hits back. NBA, NBA blames economy. By the way, when I first read this article, what did I ask you, Rob? I said, what NBA is this? And you said, it is the National Basketball Association. So I didn't believe it. NBA blames economy for hiring freeze and budget cuts. Giannis kind of opened up recently about what's going on with him, what went on with him. Aaron Rodgers appears to have endorsed RFK. Interesting to see that taking place. And then we got Riley Gaines uh, rips Nike for the partnership with Dylan Mulvaney. And then uh, claps back at accusations. She spread violence at SFSU event. And Joe Rogan had some Bud Light yesterday on the podcast. I don't know if you guys caught Oh, it. I didn't even see that. He had, yeah. some, he had some Bud Light yesterday on. He says, listen, product's a great product. I want to have it. It was so interesting the way he did it. But that's Joe. You got to love Joe for that. So prior to getting into it, I know your story. I, I've known your story for years. But for the audience, if you don't mind taking a moment and sharing your background, that would be great. We can start off with you first. So I'm Buck. Uh, and I was born and raised in New York City. Um, I'm now a Flor- Floridian, though, a Miamian, part of the... Uh, refugee wave from New York City to Florida as a result of COVID. But taking it back a little bit for anyone in your audience who knows New York City, uh, I went to Regis, which if you're from New York, you might know. It's uh, the only free private school in the country. Then I went to, um, so everyone's on a full scholarship. Then I went to uh, Amherst College, came right out of Amherst, went right into the CIA because 9-11, New Yorker, American, uh, did CIA from 2005 to 2010, uh, deployed to Iraq twice, deployed to Afghanistan, went to some places in sub-Saharan Africa uh, that I still don't really talk about, and learned some interesting stuff from that. Did a year at the NYPD Intelligence Division, 
and then Glenn Beck found me out of nowhere. Um, I was so I was the CIA guy who had been in Iraq, Afghanistan, was working effectively in like as a consultant for the NYPD intelligence division because it's my hometown. And Glenn's person emailed me out of the blue and was like, I heard about you. We should have a meeting. I swear to God. And it was actually almost weirder than the original CIA recruitment stuff where I was showing up like <laughs> abandoned office buildings. There's like no one there, yeah. but there is somebody there, you know? All the way so, back. You know, yeah, there's like one guy sitting yeah. on a folding chair that you talk to. Um, anyway, I uh, so Glenn brought me in the business uh, at the Blaze uh, 12, good God, 12 years ago now. And uh, yeah, and then from there, I started doing radio, started filling in for Glenn and then Sean Hannity, then Rush Limbaugh and uh, did some other things along the way, um, you know, CNN, Fox, all that good stuff. And then they paired me up with Clay to take over as the official premier radio network's replacement. Uh, pardon me. Filling the slot left vacant by the, the greatest of all time. Rush what Limbaugh. a pair. I mean, to to follow yeah. that guy. I mean, they're not going to just put somebody in that position that doesn't know what they're doing. I remember when that announcement was made. And everybody said, damn, that's a pretty big deal. So, you know, obviously you. people that follow the space know how big of a deal that is. Clay, how about yourself? Yeah, to speak on what Buck said, I mean, I came out of the world of sports and you usually don't want to be the guy who follows Bill Belichick or Nick Saban because usually the standard is so high. And that's I think right. that's why Julie Talbot, who's our boss at Premier, put the two of us in as opposed to one person. So I think it automatically shifted the dynamic as opposed to this guy is trying to fill the shoes, as we've said and Buck said, I think, pretty well. You know, we can each fill one shoe. And it's a different show. And, and I think that was super smart by her. Uh, but I um, – look, I, I was an attorney. I grew up in Nashville, went to George Washington in D.C., uh, went to Vanderbilt Law School, graduated, moved to the Caribbean. Uh, and uh, I practiced law down there for a couple of years at the biggest law firm in the Caribbean. Um, 13 attorneys, by the way, in the U.S. Virgin Islands. And um, while I was there, I had what I would call a quarter-life crisis where you look around, and I know there's probably a lot of lawyers out there. Some people say, oh, you get your law degree. It's amazing. And But every lawyer I've ever known that I really like has always got a plan to get out of having to practice law. Really? Yeah, at least in my experience. Why is that? Why are so many I, lawyers doing I, I, I think because when you're in law school and when you're working up towards that, what I always say is law school, you get to debate big, important issues. Uh, you get to study the most seminal cases that have ever existed in the legal process. And then your first year, you're 25 or 26 years old, and you sit in front of a computer and you do doc review. And so it is not this a uh, few good men, a time to kill caliber <laughs> experience. And I think a lot of young lawyers yeah. sort of have that gilded, this is going to be amazing. And you make a decent living. But it's an awful job, especially as a young lawyer, um, in my experience. And I, and I, even even I always say, and this is my advice to anybody out there who's young and think about it: if you don't want your boss's boss's job, you should find something new to do. Don't just look directly above you. Look at the person who's your boss's boss. If you see what they do, and you're like, ah, this doesn't really have that much appeal to me. There's nothing wrong with doing a job you don't love. Everybody has to do it. But if you aspire to truly love what you do, then if you don't want to do what your boss's boss does, that's the next 10, 15 years. So of you your don't life. want to own a law firm. You don't I want didn't, to run a law firm. I didn't want to run Makes a law sense. firm. Um, and uh, and so I practiced law for a few years. Started writing online. Um, I worked and I was in the world of sports. So uh, the, I, probably the reason why I ended up writing online is uh, speaking to being a young lawyer and everybody I knew graduated with was a young lawyer. 
you're hoping to find 10 or 15 minutes of entertainment on the internet during your day. You're not happy. You want to go click and go read this article or whatever. So I started writing hopefully funny, amusing, humorous uh, articles online about Southeastern Conference football. I was a monster, still am, college football fan, football fan in general. Uh, and that led to, uh, I, I did that for years. Eventually, he was making $100 a week at CBS Sportsline, if you remember that website back in the day. CBS Sportsline? Yeah. yeah. Did you? Wh- what year was that when you were there? Uh, I started writing there in 05. Do you, did you work with Peter Madden? Uh, I know that name, yes. Yeah, like, very so, interesting. Yeah. But So they were based here. Uh, yeah, they're in, right here, in, down the street. In, yeah, down the street. Yeah. Uh, they paid me $100 a week to write Killing two columns. Killing it. <laughs> uh, $100 a week. So after years, I'd made $5,000 dollars at that point uh, a week uh, sorry a year and I was still practicing law full-time that eventually led to uh, they got me up to I think to 35 or 40k and I thought I was I was like this is amazing then I went to deadspin if you guys remember deadspin back in its heyday um, this is kind of early web you know I would say almost 1.0 I had good timing you know the blogosphere was just kind of taken off um, and then uh, I was at fan house I got fired uh, they shut down the entire if you guys remember the fan house business model they shut down Everything. Everybody got fired, whole place. And I started a website called the Outkick in uh, 2011. And I sold that to Fox two years ago. And so slowly I moved from, hey, let's rank the top five quarterbacks. I did national sports talk radio. I did local sports talk radio. And then um, when COVID happened, March, April, May, June, our audience skyrocketed. Uh, and it was not sports. And so our boss, Julie Talbot, um, when Rush passed, came and said, hey, the data reflects people just want to hear your opinion, uh, not just about sports. How, and- how was that? How was that uh, in, to, to, to hear that people want to hear your opinion on politics, not just sports? Was that an easy transition for you? Well, it was. T- I loved the show that I did. Yeah. Um, and it was early morning Fox Sports Radio. I was on 6 to 9 a.m. Eastern. Um, and I, I think this is where having the kids – you start to pivot and think not only about yourself but about the larger world. And I love talking about who's going to win the Super Bowl or who's going to win the NBA play. But it doesn't matter, right? It's all 100% entertainment. And so whether schools are open during COVID or, frankly, whether kids can go play high school sports, because you guys probably know, and I know Buck does too, I got lots of people I know who wouldn't have had success in life if they hadn't gotten to play on the right high school team or have the right coach, especially boys. And so I've, I was just so fired up about finding ways to play. And uh, sports had become more and more, unfortunately, intertwined with politics, I would say, really kind of taken off with the Colin Kaepernick protest and that whole world. That it was like, in many ways, you were talking about politics when you tried to talk about sports. And so uh, yeah, I remember Julie saying, and this is true, we're very fortunate. We have basically the biggest radio show in the country. She said, look, you could have the best and biggest sports talk show that exists in the country, and I think you're on track to be able to do that. It would still be a pinprick of the influence that the audience that you're going to be able to talk to uh, in Rush's time slot would be able to influence. The first time I filled in for Rush was, I think, so I was a guest host for him for years, just to Clay's point. Um, I think it was 2014 or 2015, so it was was a ways back. Um, I made this sort of proclamation. I'm like, I'm going to respond Anyone who wants to email me, you know, I'm going to respond, you know, because I was used to doing, I started doing digital radio before I was on terrestrial radio on the weekends. Yeah. I had a stream on the blaze. I was super early in the sort of podcast stream space, relatively speaking, and then transitioned to terrestrial, which is kind of not the way people usually do it. But I was used to, I told Clay this because I also, I was a writer for theblaze.com and I was doing blaze TV and blaze radio. So I was doing all three of these at the time. This is when I got my start. And I could actually see. Did you have a chart beat or one of those things? Oh, where you could I, actually yeah, see. Yeah, I could see doing my show 
like there'd be nine people listening. This is when I first started. And then I'd talk about something and like a couple would drop off. And I'm like, oh, man, I just lost 30% of my audience or like 20% of my audience or whatever. So it would like kind of freak me out a little bit. Um, but, you know, I, I, I always found that uh, it, was, it was interesting to see that, that radio seemed to bring in the people who um, just had the most content all the time. Like that was my impression coming in, like yeah. people who had the most to share. Because, you know, TV, you have people who are amazing and people who – you know, or, or what, what the stops the you team. more? What, which audience stops you more? You know how, you know, the other day I'm at an, I'm at a church and this guy comes up and he says, you're the TikTok guy. I'm like, dude, I'm not a TikTok. <laughs> That's guy. awesome. By the way. I'm not that. a TikTok. I, guy. I would say this. Awesome. Whenever the one guy at UFC is like, you're the, you're the jeweler. That's right. I, <laughs> you, you're a jewelry guy. You're like, ah, oh, yeah, one watch video. Just what the, the thing I forgot to say was, Clay, I said I would respond. I spent like six hours responding to emails from doing Russia's show once. I've never wow. seen anything like it before in my life in terms of the platform and the connection. What was the number? Had? 20 to 30 million, I would hear, right? What, what was the that number? That was the reach on yeah. a monthly basis. That's 20 insane to 30 million to listeners. Yeah, yeah. It was, it and was, what we've seen, too, since then, and yeah, the reach is still amazing. I think we have 500 affiliate stations nationwide, uh, roughly. But also now we've layered on top of that the podcast, which is – and Buck and I are – Buck likes to make fun of it. He's three years younger than me, which totally – Old different. man. Look at all the gray I'm in the, that beard. I, I'm the last year of Gen X, and he's one of the first years of the millennials. So that's why I'm so much more likable. Um, but uh, <laughs> uh, I uh, – uh, the uh, – but, you know, then you layer on top of it tens of millions of downloads. And what we found, I'm sure you have seen it, too. It's funny you say, oh, you're the TikTok guy. There was this initial fear in radio that you would cannibalize your audience. And what the data actually reflects is people come now from so many different directions. So you're asking a really interesting question. Where, like, what do people recognize? Because I did four years of sports gambling daily on FS1. So, like, when I came in, when I'm flying to Fort Lauderdale yesterday, uh, or thought I was before the flood, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I... 22 inches of rain, by the way, but crazy. go ahead. Uh, I, it's unbelievable. I go through, and the guy checking my uh, ID is like, man, who you got tonight in the NBA playoffs, right? <laughs> and then so I, you know, give him picks, and I went one and one so whatever. But uh, I felt bad. He was like, if you go 0-2, I'm going to blow you up on Twitter. I was like, I know, buddy. Uh, trust me. And then uh, get to the airplane. And people are like, man, can you believe what uh, Macron said about, uh, you know, I'm sitting waiting to get uh, get on the flight. Somebody wants to talk about Macron. So it, it's kind of I, I, people come from different directions with their own perspectives. And that was always kind of my goal. I wanted them to want to talk about Game of Thrones or, uh, you know, what's going on in politics or, you know, whatever would be on the front page of the newspaper, top of mind. So you, you asked a really interesting question because it's something that I, I learned from from years of seeing it play out, not just with me, but with other yeah. hosts who are friends. The people who know you from TV tend to recognize you. The people who know you from radio know you. They will hug you. They will come up to you and they'll talk about, you know, your dog or they'll come up and they just because they spend so much time. Now, granted, I haven't hosted a show on Fox, so it's different from people just from. But I mean, if they see you on yeah. TV doing appearances, they're like, oh, I like your content. If they're spending two, maybe three hours a day with you, five days a week. I mean, we always joke. I spend more time talking to Clay than anybody in his family, with the possible exception of his wife. Right? Imagine the oh, audience. I definitely talk more to you than <laughs> fifteen <laughs> so, hours. I mean, so, have you talk fifteen hours to yeah. your wife. I mean, no, it's yeah. kind of. <laughs> yeah. So now the that people I who this. recognize you uh, from TV. Do you spend a lot of time at senior homes? Is that is that kind of what you do? <laughs> wow. is, that, is that what's going wow. on? I mean, that's a good shot. But I'll tell you this: I've got. I mentioned I had three boys. I took a picture of your one million YouTube thing in the lobby. Yeah, because. All my boys watches YouTube. Yeah, they watch sports, yep. live sports with me, 
and then everything else they do YouTube. So when I show them that one million, I got to meet Mr. Beast uh, a couple of years ago. He's, he's like a hundred. He's I mean, small, small YouTube yeah. channel, no big deal. But my kids, I mean, I would imagine it was like getting to meet Elvis in 1960. You know, to them. I think Pat brings. I think it was kind of joking with you about hey, your audience at a senior community, but the landscape has changed, right? TV, yeah, cable news, older audience, radio. My first job out of college was in radio. This is 2002, 2003. Clear Channel, yep, was the king of the hill right there. Rob worked in radio for I don't know forever. I think you even had a radio show at one point. Did you know? KRLA, yeah, with but, Hugh Hewitt and those guys, like 15, 13 forever years ago. ago. Yeah. But now the landscape is. YouTube, podcasts, and things have changed, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, what have you, you seen see the, the, the biggest de- difference been? So the demos are obviously different from podcast, YouTube. I mean, you know, I, I would say TikTok, which has kind of replaced Snapchat in the, mm-hmm. you know, in this hierarchy or in this uh, separation. Which that would be the youngest. Vine, right? Right, right. That, that's like the youngest demo for content. And then right above that, probably you have YouTube. And then above that, you have uh, podcasting. And then above that, you have cable news in terms of, you know, age stratification. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, at, at the very top of it, I would say terrestrial radio tends to be an older, more established. Uh, newspapers you know. above that. I still get but the journal. So, so the only two people I know on the planet who get the old school paper, paper uh, Wall Street Journal are my dad and Clay. I know I like kind you, of buddy. Old yeah. school. He's got the ninja moves with the actual physical paper. <laughs> but no, we, we approach it. I mean, one thing that I was told because so, you know, Glenn uh, started started the blaze when he left Fox and he'd had that remember that when he used to do e, e, the, e, the, the four e's and the fox he used to crush it by the way that was, show was people wouldn't miss it at night so i was at the intelligence division the nypd and i just remember all we had all these screens up that yeah. you know some of it is like trying to stop terrorism but also then there were tvs <laughs> then there then there were tvs of you know the news and it would all turn to glenn at five at five o'clock uh, you know every day and um but one thing that that he recognized very early on i actually don't think he gets enough credit for this in the conservative space is he was like, we just need to be present with good content everywhere. So he was in a podcasting streaming. I remember Roku. I didn't even know what a Roku was. I went to work at the blaze and they had Roku for TV. So, you know, in the early days of that, you could see that there were going to be a lot more ways for people to consume content. But the good news is that it also means the, the audience is a lot bigger, but then again, everybody has a pod. Like people come up to me now. They're like, Hey, I want to start a podcast. I'm like, have you, have you ever done a podcast? You know, like I'm like, I mean, that's great. Like, go for it. But you know, it feels like these days a lot of people are are uh, everyone wants to be a, uh, an influencer. That's the term, an influencer. Well, I'll I'll build on. Uh, you mentioned that somebody came out and said you're a TikTok guy. Um, so you guys, I don't know if you've seen this clip. If you haven't, you should should watch it. Like four years ago, I went on CNN and said I only believed in two things completely: the First Amendment and boobs. Right, live on the air, they banned me. I'm not allowed on CNN now because you said boobs. Because I said boobs. Straight up. Uh, straight it was up. my friend who banned him, by the way, but I didn't know him at the time, so otherwise I would have stepped in. <laughs> Just because you said the word, should, the context was all over the place. This was all over the place. It was the number yeah. one trending topic in America. Uh, she wanted me to apologize. I didn't do it. The reason why I bring it up is that was like four or five years ago. My uh, oldest son, last year. <laughs> they've got, no, it, they've the, got it up. They've yeah, got it on go. the screen. Yeah, there we go. That's it. Uh, oh, man. Can we play that? Amendment absolutist. I believe in only two things completely: the First Amendment and boobs. And so, once they made the decision that they were Wait, not going to allow a conservative, non-sports-related and... commentary, they right, couldn't do it. Hold on, hold on, either. hold on. I just want to make sure I heard you correctly. As a woman anchoring the show, did you say what did you say? You yeah. believe in the First Amendment and BWBS? 
You can't even say boobs. Two things that have only never let me down in this entire country's history: the First Amendment and boobs. First Amendment absolutist, I believe. So you got canceled because of that? Oh, they tried. I mean, legitimately, they tried to get me fired off my radio show. I mean, I owned Outkick, so I mean, that's one of the benefits I think of owning your own methods of distribution. And I would say to anybody who wants to get involved in media, um, one of the most important things is you have to control. I believe your ability to make money in some way because there's so much pressure out there on media entities that as soon as you get a little bit outside of the acceptable bounds of discourse uh but that clip that you guys watched I think that was 2017-ish 18 whatever it was it suddenly went viral on TikTok and so every kid in my kid's school. Very interesting. Never knew it existed. Got it. Right? Because they're like eight or nine years old when that yeah. happens. Yeah. But Suddenly, every one of them had seen it. Millions of people. My, yeah. It was all positive. The yeah. kids loved it, but that was an audience that had never seen wow. before. I, I first saw your content on TikTok, by the way. So there are a number so, of people. So, so, other, so, I mean, I know we you go. got from the podcast, obviously, but that's also how... I mean, I know you guys had Tate on, yeah. and, and you know he's now home uh, home confinement right yeah. in Romania. I've been reaching out. We, we've been reaching out to his team for a couple of weeks right before the arrest happened because we want we wanted to have him on. It's funny because I was like, it's like, look, like this guy says really interesting stuff. I know he's controversial and all that stuff, and obviously he's facing these charges now. But Clay and I talked about it. We hadn't, you know, brought it up before. I looked at him. I'm like, I'm like, I see this guy on TikTok. I think we should have him on the show. I think it's really interesting some of the stuff that he's saying. And he's like, what? Do you, he's like, he's my son's favorite my two oldest boys I, every now Tate, and then i'll yeah. go and i'll say like hey because I, I mentioned they're on youtube they're on, wait how old are your boys by the way uh 15 12 and 8 okay so the two teenagers oldest, not below teenagers. oh yeah. yeah the two oldest i said hey if i could have anybody on the radio show who would you like me to have on and they both instantaneously said Andrew Tate. And then Buck wow. brought him up like the next, you know, two or three days Just later. Happenstance, yeah. But I think it speaks to there's a lot of boys out there, and we've talked about this on our show, that feel lost in this sort of toxic yeah. masculinity era. Mm-hmm. And so they're looking for that's why I mentioned coaches earlier, but that masculine influence who can tell teach them how to be men. And I feel like his individual, like, hey, just go do more push-ups uh, and stop being a pussy. Like, that actually connects a lot, you guys remember, with 13, 14, 15-year-old boys. Yeah, there's no question about it. I, I asked the question when I said, like, who's the audience? When people come in, they'll talk to me. I'll say, so how do you know about us and what we do? Oh, I watch Vaitimin all the time. I said, do you watch the podcast or just Vaitimin? Which podcast? Oh, okay, great. So you're more the Vaitimin audience. How about yourself? You know, I, I watch the podcast and I listen, you know, yeah. through Spotify. Okay, so Spotify, interesting audience. What do you do for I want to know what the background of these guys are. Yeah. TikTok, if I go to school with my kids, their kids will, their friends will stop by because they're TikTok audience, right? Yeah. Snap audience, I can't really find a Snapchat audience. There's Instagram, there's YouTube, there's Spotify, there's, you know, TikTok, but it's different. If I go on Fox and I see who stops me, I'm on a Dan Bongino show and next thing you know, the following day, hey, you know, I saw you sit on the Dan Bongino show. So, okay, that makes sense. Older crowd. Yep. It's a very different crowd. But the, the thing when you're starting out, I think, is you got to, when you're newer, not you guys. You guys you guys are, at this point, you're vets. You're running the show with the biggest eyeballs. You took a spot that everybody wanted. Everybody was fighting for that spot. I remember the whole talk was, this guy's going to get it. Yeah. Is he going to get it? Is that going to get it? No way. Thank God. That's insane. Right? Everybody was talking about that slot. But uh, you, when you start out, it's important to have a very niche 
audience to start off with, and then gradually as you go wider and you talk other opinions, people say, damn, you actually can talk about that stuff? Can we hear more things like that? Kind of like what you were talking about earlier. The thing about radio, I said, like, the people come up and hug. And I literally mean that. Like, if someone comes up and they're like, fuck, and they hug me and I don't know them, they listen to me on radio and some have been listening for 12 years. It's crazy. I mean, there's some people. There have been – I know of a a couple that's married – because they both listened to my show, and through hashtags, they found each other. I swear to God, guys in the military found each other, found so this you're a lovely lady. As well. just, just because but they love the, the show. What don't you do? You know, CIA, I, I, you know, the, the, the most impressive thing for some of the people that listen from TikTok is when you said you transitioned. <laughs> because that's becoming very common nowadays to transition, and it's it's impressive that maybe you started that seven um, years ago, eight you know, years ago. I like to think that I'm a guy who adapts very quickly. You know, it's part of the training, part of the CIA training, and plus we had you know understanding of how to how to shape. My a, name is Buck beard. Sexton, and I've transitioned from from CIA to media. <laughs> they're just going to clip that on yeah, TikTok. That's going to be, be fun. Trans- so, I, but but real, just real quick, you're talking about all these platforms. It also is it's a business strategy, but it's also a survival mechanism. And we saw this particularly during COVID. I mean, survival, you know, within the within the business, um, because now everyone really understands what some of us have been shouting about for a long time. We've both dealt with this a bit. I mean, you showed Clay trying to cancel. I've been I've been throttled, suspended, kicked off, account shut down. And it was all really over COVID stuff. So now people understand that you got to be on, you know, on YouTube, on Rumble, yeah. uh, on Spotify, all these different places. Because if you go all in on one place, they will turn the lights off on you for political reasons, for nonsense reasons, right? Not for anything that anybody. So that's why I think also being multi-platform is is kind of a necessity now uh, for for almost everybody who's in the business. More than being a multi-platform individual yourself is. Who's running those different platforms? Like one of the best things that happened is Spotify backed up Rogan, okay, Musk bought Twitter, yep. and Rumble is growing. Those three things are very, very good for content creators because just two or three years ago, one person in Silicon Valley canceled you, 99 other people canceled you as well, similar to what happened yeah. a couple guys that we both know about. All right, let's go into some stories here. You're from New York, okay? Yes, sir. Article came out yesterday from uh, uh, New York uh, uh, Post, nearly... A third of New Yorkers want to move out. This is after all the 330,000, you know, the numbers that we've all read about and how many people left. Nearly a third of New Yorkers want to move out, fed up with crime, housing costs, poor, poor, uh, poor schools, and more. If you look at the bottom with stats, New Yorkers are so worried about crime, sky-high housing costs, and struggling schools, 27% of state residents said they want to move away in the next five years, a survey, survey revealed a stunning 30% respondents who also cited inept political leadership and soaring taxes as reasons for wanting to flee said they already long to live somewhere else, according to Siena College Research Institute. Quality of life poll, nearly a third, 31% plan to leave the Empire State when they retire, while even more said they believe it's not safe for kids. Angela Gutierrez, 38, of East Harlem, is one of the New Yorkers who will soon ditch the state. The more and more you looked at the stats, I mean, this was a place that everybody wanted to be at. Bottom stats I'll read to you, and then I'll turn it over to you guys. 67% of residents in New York wasn't affordable, while only 30% said it was. 49% of respondents said New York uh, uh, fair or poor when asked if it's a place where they feel safe from crime. Only 51% gave an answer of good or excellent. Crime surged during the pandemic. 60% of New York is not a good place to retire, while 38% said it was. 57% said the political system doesn't work. I mean, I can go on and on and on and on and on. 
What do you think is really happening in New York? Because when I talk to New Yorkers, they'll say things like this. They'll say, no one's going to leave New York. No matter what they say, no one's leaving New York. This is the place to be. This is the Mecca. This is where everybody comes to. What's really going on in New York? People who say that are unfortunately delusional. So I'm born and raised in New York City. Um, both my parents were born in New York City. Three of my four grandparents were born in New York City. So we go back quite a ways in, in NYC. I grew up in a New York, just for the, the purpose of the audience to understand what has happened here, because New York went through an incredible, really almost miraculous fix and now has been ruined again, effectively, or is in the process, I should say, of being ruined. So when I grew up in New York City, which is early, like, let's say, early 90s, 1990, New York had over 2,200 murders, okay? People go back, and they always they say, there's no way. You can check that statistic. It was 22-something, uh, over 2,000 murders, which, when you think about what we're looking at now in different cities, I mean, New York got went from 2,200 murders. Giuliani comes in. There's this whole change in the approach to to crime and criminal justice and everything yep. by the time i'm graduating high school new york is now looking at can we get below 300 murders think about that from 2200 people gunned down to in a decade or so you're like can we get it to like 250 275 so that happened which was phenomenal and new york i do think obviously 9 11 uh but actually the response from the city to 9 11 and the it was incredible how fast the bounce back was from the biggest attack on our country since Pearl Harbor. And obviously it's what led me to the CIA and trying to, I literally got out of college and I was like, I, I want to help find bin Laden and, and kill that SOB. Like that was my mission in life. I went to work for CTC and the CIA. So New York was this amazing place. It got super safe. It, Clay always says in the show, and it's totally true that you want to be able to live in a place where your wife can go jogging at night and you don't even think twice about it. And I'm telling you, New York in the 2000s, from let's say 2000 to 2010, 2011, before de Blasio, 100% the case. So then you get de Blasio who comes in. The problem is New York City had been so safe, so wealthy, and was the mecca that those people talk about, that it seemed like it was you know, an unsinkable battleship of, of awesomeness, right? It's just... Oh, okay, we can have we can raise taxes. We can start to do things that are we can go a little la more lax on crime. Let's get rid of stop and frisk. Let's change some of these policies. We've made it safe. We don't need to keep doing these things anymore. And it started to deteriorate. What they don't realize is that there's a momentum to these things. Not only did you have de Blasio at the top pushing effectively socialist policies in New York, but then you also bring in, and I had a, one of my best friends in the world was in the district attorney's office for like over a decade. So I was always talking to him about this, and I worked at the NYPD. You start seeding. They talk about the Soros-backed prosecutors. Yeah, you also get leftist radicals, not only in these different activist groups, but also they start working for city government themselves. They start coming in. They start pushing this ideology more. And then as the city began to deteriorate, you could see that they were still hoping, well, you have to be here. That's the thing about New York. It was kind of like Hollywood and L.A. and Silicon Valley, right? Mm -hmm. These places mm -hmm. where they got you. There's almost a monopoly on yeah. the industry. Well, COVID comes, COVID comes along. So even though there are people like this is getting it's getting dirty, it's getting unsafe, it's way too expensive. They got rid of the salt deduction. COVID comes along and now you realize you're actually ruled over by totalitarian morons who don't care if – they create misery and economic destruction because they think that this is what social justice looks like. New York is going to take at least a decade, if not decades, to recover to what it was based on the damage that was done, uh, particularly, I'd say, in the last 10 years in the city. But COVID just sent it all into overdrive. So that's, that's how it all broke down.
I felt fortunate because I lived in Nashville, just south of town, and it was like COVID didn't even exist. Mm. <laughs> you know, mm. I mean, uh, I spent, I came down here, uh, my kids were out of school, you know, March, April, May, um, and I came down to Florida and we spent May because I was like, how often are the kids going to be out for the whole time? We'll just spend a month at the beach. But I think I, I went up to visit where Buck lived <laughs> and New York is great, not because for most people where they live in New York City, but because when you leave your apartment, you can experience the city. And what COVID did was take away the experience. And a lot of people were like, this is kind of a shitty place to live <laughs> if you don't have the larger experience of the city. And then on top of what Buck said, I think a lot of people then made choices that they never would have if COVID didn't happen. And they said, okay, I'm going to try to do my job and I'm going to go outside of the city. And what they found out was I can be just as efficient outside of the city as I would be otherwise. Because you would have never suddenly, if you got a successful business, you never would have made the choices to try things that you had to do during COVID. But when you did, I think what happened, and I've been on this for a while, COVID made red, redder, and blue, bluer. And it accelerated what I think has become very much of a national divorce. And I'll be honest with you. If I had been living in New York City or L.A., when I, when I started OutKick, to Buck's point, everybody said, you can't run a media business from Nashville. You're going to have to move at some point to New York or L.A. Uh, I think that's totally false. I think there are a lot of different cities now where there's a lot of talent in them. Miami, South Florida is one. Nashville is one where I live. Austin, Texas is one. Um, and people realize that they could be based anywhere. And so the allure of New York City when – your kids are having to wear masks for years. When your kids are having to live remotely, when you're cramped in a tiny little apartment, you can barely get outside to walk a dog and you can't take your kids to a park, suddenly wasn't there. And I think it's going to take a while because now people have experienced other things. Buck, you know, you know this. Like suddenly I'm, I'm like, one of these people. Yeah, I'm you're like, Florida. wait a minute. I can a, a million dollar place in New York. I get you know 700 square feet on the 28th floor of a building. Or I can be in Boise, Idaho, and I can have a monster house, right? And I think it caused Baker, people Baker's to ex- in Boise. Oh yeah, yeah. caused yeah. people to experience new things, and uh, and I so I think the result is reds, red or blue, bluer. And I think we're just starting to experience that conflict of what that's going to create. I also think that during COVID, and this was a big part of why I decided to move and leave, and I do thank Governor Ron DeSantis for what he did during the pandemic. I was one of those people. I mean, I was actually the one who tweeted uh, during the pandemic early on that leaving New York City for Florida was the closest thing you could experience as an American to leaving East Germany for West (laughs) Germany in the 1960s. I mean, you went from, you know, being at LaGuardia Airport where there were actual National Guard soldiers saying, like, what are they going to shoot the virus? And the whole thing was insane. They're, they're taking down information for test and trace, the dumbest program in the history of the universe. I remember arguing with doctors about this. I was like, guys, test and trace, this has never worked anywhere. This is insane. And they'd say, it works for STDs. Well, yeah, because <laughs> when you ask, you know, you would think that's a little bit easier to figure out, right? But the, there was a mentality. There was a psychosis that took over the leadership class there. You came down to Florida, and people are splashing around in the ocean. They're going to restaurants. They're living their lives. I'm like, what the hell is going on here? And then I realized, oh, the the 90% of New York City residents who voted, or it's like 80% actually, but 90% of Manhattan is Democrat, 80% of the city is Democrat, they're part of the apparatus now. They're okay with this. Like, they're, they've been so brainwashed 
that I, I actually reached the point where I was no longer just angry at, at the time, the mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio. I was angry at the people who were shouting at everybody to wear masks outside because what was wrong with them? Like, what had happened to them? Fellow New Yorkers were supposed to have this, like, tough, we don't take any guff, you know, any BS from anybody attitude or whatever. No, we turned into a bunch of triple masking, you know, wimps who were begging for the government to protect them and do all the. It was crazy. And so I'm... I'm angry about what was done to the city, and I'm actually still very angry at the people who were in charge uh, across the board. In what, a, what a point to, to say that, you know, New Yorkers are known to not back down, and now you're just doing whatever is. they're telling oh, you to do. Oh, that's impressive. Adam. Impressive research yeah. over there. Yeah. Well, look, I think I think um, Clay's absolutely right. Sort of during COVID, the, the red got redder, the blue got bluer. Born and raised in Miami, so welcome to Miami officially there, Bob. Awesome. Thank you. Um you know, I love New York City. I'm actually going this weekend, and I mean, I would never move there. Yeah, but spend a week or two there, hanging around the city. Still, my favorite city. I love it. Just it, everything that kind of comes with the city, the price attached to living in New York City, it's kind of insane. You said you can you get a million dollar house in Boise for you get a million dollar shoebox in New York That's City. That's right. Um, you know, I actually went during COVID. This would have been when we were in Boca. So it'd have been 2021. I do a lot of man-on-the-street interviews, and I went around and I started interviewing everybody in New York. Basically, this was when $30 billion of tax revenue left the city. Yeah. And I went just talking to average people. Like, so, did you stay in New York? Why'd you leave New York? What would you consider leaving New York? You know, and, and you get a wide variety of answers, but, you know, the, the, the common themes were taxes are insane, right? The cost of living is insane. Just basically, the prices are insane, and it's... One guy was like, listen, maybe just people aren't tough enough to stick it out in New York. You know, the old Frank Sinatra, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. But I think, you know, I've seen so many people because because I used to work in nightlife and every basically winter, Christmas, New Year's, like the New Yorkers would come and us South Beach promoters yeah. were like, all right, let's charge these mother suckers double. And I would see this love affair with Miami and South Florida from all the New Yorkers and we would see them kind of tiptoe each year, like, all right, yeah, one week this year, one month. And then we, I'd be like, when are these guys going to freaking wake up and realize you could just move here? Yeah. And I think COVID basically was the impetus for them to get the hell out of here. What you hit on, and Buck and I have talked about this, it's not just people leaving. It's the people that have the most resources that are leaving. <laughs> and, yes. you know, the difference between... yeah. 13 and 14% tax in California and in New York and where you guys are in Florida, where Buck is now, and where I am in Tennessee, we have no state income tax. Same thing in Texas. Let's just use those three as an example. If you make a million dollars a year, that's hundred and thirty or $140,000 extra in your pocket. Mm. That's a million. Imagine if you make $10 million or $100 million. I don't understand. I mean, just being quite honest, I don't understand why anybody who is wealthy and I mean supremely wealthy, would ever make their residence in New York or L.A. And I think COVID, some of those guys were like, well, I've got so much money at stake. I've got a hedge fund. I got private equity. I've got to be based here. Suddenly when COVID happened, those guys took chances in terms of where they lived that they never would have otherwise, and their revenue didn't change. 
And then they're looking at it now, and they're like, why would I ever give a government 14% for the privilege of living you know, you know, Maybe that's why your Knicks suck, man. Everyone looks at the, <laughs> uh, at, at, you know, well, contracts so, going so on totally over fair, there. It's like, why the hell would I move to New York? I, I grew up watching the Knicks, and it's funny because one of our Ewing, ongoing, Larry Johnson, oh John Starks, those are your the guys. bomb squad? Huh? Are you kidding me? The Oak Tree? I remember all of them. Yeah, I, I, my, my brother had an Anthony Mason jersey because his name is Mason, so it said Mason yeah. on the back. Like, we, we loved the Knicks growing up. Um, I have since stopped watching both the NBA and the NFL for reasons that I don't think are. are what do you mean? Complete. You just don't watch I sports not, anymore? I, I will not watch. No, no, straight up for politics. Yeah, I won't do it because everything that happened with the the Colin Kaepernick and the bubble and the, All of it. And the social justice stuff. It. You're just not into it. Won't do it. Wow. Don't watch. Yep. And you were a lifelong out. sports guy. I mean, I grew up. Yeah, I grew up actually playing a little bit. I wasn't very good or anything, but I grew up playing. Maybe because you just couldn't get that helmet on your on your head, bro. <laughs> What's funny you say that because I avoided <laughs> helmet sports specifically because I didn't want like even this is going to give me a headache if I keep it on because my head's too big um but yeah so I, I stopped watching sports i did grow up though uh you know going to games yankee stadium but i mean yankee stadium just to give you showed that thing mm-hmm. it was like my dad would have a talk to me like i remember when i when i when i was in afghanistan like before we would we would go out you know in the city and you get together you get together with our guys these uh, grs guys who are all you know they're they're seal special forces delta guys and they're trying to if you've seen 13 hours right of course those guys. So I was, if you see that movie, I was one of the guys that they're sort of with, you know, they're the shooters and I'm there to, you know, have the meeting or talk to people or whatever. But we'd have this conversation about like, well, what are we going to run up against here? Like, what do we think the chances of IDs or whatever? It kind of reminded me when I was a little kid and my dad was like, we're going to Yankee Stadium. Mm-hmm. It was everyone in New York was like, you know, it's really dangerous around there. Like, we're not going to go walking around there. And that was just considered, you didn't go into Central Park at night. If you wanted a Central Park at night growing up in New York City and you got robbed, it was on you. It was like, what are you doing in the park? This is the nicest park in the richest part of the whole city. But like, if you wanted mm-hmm. at night, you got robbed. So those are those are sort of the, the the changes that I think happen psychologically in New York. But also, like, you can get, you know, I was telling him this the other day too. You, you can find what you want everywhere in the country now in a way you couldn't before. So in a lot of the big, like New York, Chicago, L.A. They had just better food than other places. I know people will argue about this, but they're wrong. Like in the 90s, you know, a good restaurant in Nashville, no offense, was not a good restaurant in New York City. Now it is. Same level, same quality of food. You can buy anything anywhere. I made a joke on Twitter. You could go on Amazon now and buy a tank. I don't know if you still can. But it used to be you're in New York because they had the best food, the best shopping, and all the job opportunities you needed. And if you're a single guy, the biggest dating pool in the whole country Mm -hmm. concentrated in one place. A lot of that stuff now doesn't really matter. Don't you, you think there's the a metaphor stuff? with kind of what you're saying about these cities with exactly what we were talking about with the podcasts and basically you don't need to be in these mainstream legacy media companies. You can just kind of have your own YouTube channel or your own pos- podcasting channel versus you don't need to be in these major cities anymore. You can just kind of do it from anywhere. Yeah, I mean, building on what Buck said, I remember going to New York City as a kid, the bookstores. Like for people out there who are around my age, I'm 44 you would go, if you grew up where I did in, in Goodlettsville, Tennessee, which is not necessarily the fancy area of Nashville, you went to Walden Books, right, in your mall. And Walden Books might have, I don't know, 15,000 book or titles or something in it. And you would go, if you're trying to read something, and I was a huge reader, you would go there and you would hope that they might have a book that you wanted to read, right? Well, Clay went to Civil War camp, by the way. <laughs> I'm a history True story. Too. True story. Legit Civil War sleepaway camp. Um, but, uh, but the... Uh, then I remember coming to New York City and being like, oh, my God, Barnes & Noble. Like, my thing that I was most impressed by in New York City wasn't the, you know, huge buildings. It was all of the bookstores that were everywhere and being able to find books you couldn't get anywhere. Now, 
You go on Amazon, you get any book delivered yeah. to your house yeah. in 12 hours. I mean, right? I'm, I moved to Miami, what, I don't know, six months ago now, something like that. I haven't been shopping once. Everything just gets delivered that I mm. need, right? And so that's true now all over the country. So it's kind of the the Amazoning or Amazonification of the country has also changed, I think, one of the big advantages of being in a city. You know, for people who used to live out in more, like more rural areas, even some of the suburbs, it's like, oh, like, got to, you know, if, if you want to get something, you had to get in a car for 40 minutes, right? Now everything gets delivered to your front door, so and, it changes. And even pushing the remote concept backfired on a lot of these cities. When New York City or San Francisco, oh, everybody can work from home for the rest of their lives. Oh, really? No problem. I will work from home in Texas. I will work from home from Florida yeah. or Tennessee, and I won't pay the taxes. Not a problem. We support your remote. Now they're shitting bricks saying, no, 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 that remote work was just a idea. We got to get back to the office. This is not working out. You know, commercial real estate's taking a hit. This Class A buildings are taking a hit. So a lot of these ideas that they drove is exactly what backfired on them. Well, building on Buck, making fun of me for reading old school newspapers. <laughs> I was on the airplane yesterday reading my old school newspaper. By the way, almost the only person now on on the airplane who actually carries newspapers. And to what you're saying, Facebook has fired, I think, 30% of their workforce. And I know Elon Musk has wiped out 80% of Twitter's workforce. But they said many of the top managers at Facebook now, some of the guys are living in Europe. Uh, some of the guys, like they aren't e- even top level employees at Facebook, are traveling sometimes back to Silicon Valley, but they're actually based in Europe. Yeah. So I, I think to your point, the challenge that a lot of these companies are having is one, we're finding out that they can do their work with a fraction of the people, right? I mean, Twitter is running basically as effectively, it appears to me, on 1,500 employees as it was 8,000. And I think Elon Musk has given a lot of these big tech companies knowledge of just how many people they employ that uh, that they don't need and just one more thing on the looking at the crime statistics i mean people always focus immediately on on homicides for obvious reasons right it's the most serious crime and also it's very hard for that to be messed with as a stat right people tend to know when there's a body when someone's been killed and and that's not something that a city can hide quality of life stuff though i mean this is what you're really seeing in san francisco although there's violent crime there too that we've seen recently Quality of life crimes in pretty much every major city, which are all under Democrat control, not to make it too political, but it is political, uh, they're they're completely through the roof. Meaning just the day-to-day stuff, you know, people seeing, um, you know, open-air drug usage and the effective or actual uh, decriminalization of drugs, um, you know, needles on the streets, all that kind of stuff. That makes people not want to go into the downtown also. right? So there's there's a snowball effect here. Things just kind of keep getting bigger because the remote work is easier. You can go to a low-tax place. And also, I mean, do you want to go into downtown San Francisco these days? Do you want to go into, you know, even like Times Square in New York has gotten a lot sketchier in the last few years. You, you would, you would think days. that, but they voted uh, the same type of mayor in Chicago. Yep. San Francisco is not changing. They voted a Democratic governor, although she almost lost, to – uh, the other guy who was creating a lot of momentum. He, what's his name? The New York governor that was running up against. Uh, what was Vogel? his name? No, him, no, no the, Zeldin. The, the, Zeldin. 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 Yeah, Zeldin made a name for himself. They thought, hey, you're going to run for president. Think about this: Lee Zeldin wins. Bragg gets fired. Trump doesn't get indicted. So that decision by those Democrats in New York, Big not move. to go along with Lee Zeldin may change the history of the country in a pretty profound way as this legal issue for yeah. Trump plays out. And also think about how much harder—we talked about this on the show—those cities and those states, 
only have themselves to blame. And I think Buck's analogy on New York City is a great one from 2200 down to 300 or 250 or whatever the murder rate went to. It's because people in New York City got so fed up. They said, okay, bring in Rudy Giuliani. We'll elect a Republican. We're going to have to shake up what we're doing. They're so committed, the left-wingers are, that they just elected this guy Brandon Johnson in Chicago, for an example. He, and, and we've talked about this on the show, got the support overwhelmingly from the highest crime areas, and he's basically a defund the police guy. So one of the challenges I think that's going to be in play here is a lot of sane people have bailed, and they're just not voting there. To the point on Lee Zeldin, how many, probably several hundred thousand would-be red voters have just said, I'm done with New York. That's how we made Florida redder. It's how DeSantis won by 19 points. How much more challenging is it going to be for that pivot to occur because they're losing some of the middle-of-the-road sane voters that would otherwise have allowed moderates so, to win. So let me ask you this. Uh, New York, we beat up New York plenty. Let's go to the next topic, but it's within this topic. So, you know, every uh, election season, different topics matter. Uh, midterms, everybody talked about Roe v. Wade, bad timing. It's McConnell's fault. He did it intentionally to hurt Trump to show that, hey, by ha- getting an endorsement for MAGA no longer means as much as it did before. We got to go a different way. We got to get a rhino candidate, da-da-da. Okay, great. You go Trump ran, hey, it's got to be a border. It's going to make America great again. We got to pay attention to the border, China, tariffs. You know, everybody runs on something that's timely that people are interested in. If you guys were hired to be the campaign managers or strategists behind closed doors for DeSantis or Trump. What would be the top three, you know, uh, items you would be driving that the voters right now are most concerned about? Um, he wrote a book on this, so he's going to have My a book's lot. Be it's, out it's, in it's, 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 this so is the topic of his book. Entire so I'll just I'll do an appetizer, and he can do the entree on this one. Um, I, I think the, the border is an enormously important issue. All these things have to be messaged the right way, and people have to really understand why it matters, as well as just the constant you know, bringing this up and part of the national conversation. Um, I mean, I think the, the border, the economy is always, always top three. So what could be done for the economy that, we better, that would be better than what we've seen? Um, and I really also think as Ukraine is heating up, people that – come forward and explain how we spent 20 years fighting in wars. I was, as a civilian CIA analyst, not a door kicker, but I was in a couple of those war zones, saw what was going on personally. The fact that it feels like we've almost forgotten the lessons of what are we doing here and what is the strategy this quickly with this Ukraine mission creep, it is 100% mission creep that we have. You know, it's always incremental, so it feels like, oh, but we're not, you know, we don't have you. Well, actually, we do have U.S. troops there, as they've now come out and said. What, we have what do you US- mean by mission creep? That it's just going to incrementally yes, get bigger and exactly. bigger and bigger and bigger of a thing? Exactly. So it's not like we're going to be pulling out anytime soon, like an Afghanistan situation. We're going to be doubling down? Is that We what are mean? going to be supporting the Ukrainians against the Russians for years. Mm, sure. This war will go on for years. And anybody who doubts that should remember that the war has been going on already since 2014 when they initially invaded the Donbass and then had the phony referendum in Crimea. I mean, it was a referendum, but it was at gunpoint, whatever. Um, This has already been building for a long time. This issue is much more important to the Russians than it is to us. Uh, They will go to the mat on this one. There is no, oh, Putin's under too much pressure. The guy who takes over after Putin, he's not going to want to give up Ukraine either, whoever that would be. Um, So somebody who can say, I'm going to keep us out of a war. We're only going to war if someone's starting a war with us. I think that would be very powerful, um, and I think that's why Trump, by the way, in his recent Tucker interview, focused so much on that foreign policy piece. Secure the border, 
Um, oh, and, and then I know you said three. I'm sorry. Economy, we could all agree. And the other one would be crime. Crime is huge. Republicans are up 10, up 12, up 15, depending on the poll you see against Democrats in crime because they've basically decided to legalize crime as part of a social justice initiatives and all kinds of crazy left-wing abolish the police ideology. So that's what we got. So you mentioned DeSantis and Trump. Let me actually start with Biden. Um, if Trump is the nominee, Joe Biden, my concern is, and I think it's true, Joe Biden's entire record won't matter because his entire campaign is going to be, I'm not Trump. And most of the time, elections are referendums on the incumbent. My concern is Trump versus Biden 24, the entire story is going to be Biden saying, I'm not Trump, and those suburban, college-educated white women who overwhelmingly abandoned Trump, I don't know how Trump gets them back. So if I were advising Trump, I would say your entire campaign has to be moms. Because how do you change? What is what has occurred in, in, 20, in the last four years? If I'm advising Trump, you need to be running a general election campaign starting now, and you have to appeal. How do you get those people back? That is the sole focus, because Buck and I have talked about this on the show. We certainly talk about it off air. It's the number one conversation. Let's presume 81 million people. Let's take the numbers that are out there. 81 million roughly voted for Biden. Obviously, rig job, benefit of COVID, changing the rules, all those things. I'm not, I don't want to have the debate, but 81 million, 75 million roughly for Trump. 156 million voters. How many of those people are willing to change their mind in 2024 if we have a rematch? The How only, many do you think, actually? A million, right? I, I don't think that – I think people are – this goes to the point on you're voting Democrats. Red, red, or blue, bluer. I think people are so dug in. It's like trench warfare in politics. It's hard to get the lines to move at this point. So – what do you have to do if you are Trump? To me, you have to convince all those women. And this is why the abortion thing, I think, is going to play in. Because I think they'll, they'll also, they'll just terrify you. You know, your daughter, she gets pregnant and she's 14. She's not, Trump's going to keep her from getting an abortion, right? Like, that's the, they're going to go after these suburban college moms. And it's going to be a challenge. So I, I have a slightly different pathway for Trump if he is, in fact, the, the nominee on the Republican side, um, just because I think what Clay is saying about the numbers is obviously true. I think Trump's ability to win back those voters is close to zero. Um, so the <laughs> you only don't think he can flip the you're saying those, the soccer like moms, moms. Yeah, no chance. They're checked out. No chance. No oh. chance. And I love Trump. I mean, I think he's a great guy. I mean, when I say that, I actually mean that on a more like personal level. I think he's a great guy. I really, you know, Clay and I have spent a lot of time with him. I've actually known him and the family since I was a, a little kid in New York too. not well, but, you know, I met him at different events and things. He went to prom with Ivanka. Uh, Brag you can't on yourself. do that here. It was junior <laughs> prom. Real story? It was junior prom. Um, yeah, it was like she was a friend. I can't believe he just blew me off. You know, oh, it's kind of a, I would brag I can't about buddy. Just, no, buddy, it's the most interesting kids. thing that you've like said so far. What are you talking about? This so is, you gotta so, give a shit about Afghanistan. Opinions <laughs> like CIA. Yeah, if he had, if exactly. You'd, know, you'd been like, he went to prom with Ivanka. Looking at you in a whole different way. <laughs> so, Here, I thought you were this big-headed dude that yeah. just you know talks <laughs> politics. Now I know you got some game. Yeah, it was. It was no. There's no photo of it online. It was junior. It was junior prom. All right, prom. Junior prom. Junior. You went with. Ivanka, let's relax. Really, Buck, you're doing your thing. So, um, 
Yeah, I mean, Jared's a very powerful man. Also, so. By the way, By they're the way, down here in if, Miami. If Jared, if Jared is worried about who his, who his uh, girlfriend, uh, who his wife yeah. dates, which 15, she was thinking. Uh, By the way, have you guys this is total? Have you guys gone to your uh, your wives or girlfriends like uh, high school reunions or college reunions? Have you guys been to any of those events? No. Oh. Well, so but th- this is an experience. To see who Would they you dated. You're saying yes. That's, that's I mean, I did have the the L.A. Times reached out to me. I saw the DM somewhere on Facebook, and they were just like, "We've seen the photos of you at Ivanka <laughs> at, at the Regis prom. Like, would you like to comment?" I didn't even respond. I was like. What am I gonna comment? Like I, we were fifteen year old kids. Like we're there's like priests everywhere. I went to a Jesuit school. Like, I don't even understand what we're talking I been about. Like but yes, but not on the. Record. It, was, it was funny though because she she I mean she was she's a a, a total sweetheart and a, and a really really nice. Always has been a really nice person. Um, I didn't realize how much at the time it was. It actually was the other girls who were there who all because she was really big in the like uh, sixteen magazine mm-hmm. or you know whatever you know mm-hmm. teen ma- it was, those kind of like fashion magazines for younger people. Tiger Beat back in so, the day, man. So she was taking photos with them for like I was just like there by myself talking to guys like, yeah, you know, she's my friend. She came, you know, she was not my girlfriend. Uh I don't want to like overplay this, but um, anyway, she's she's a cool lady. So I've known the Trumps for a long time. Back to politi- <laughs> back to political analysis. Um, but uh, I think Trump's a great guy. I don't think he can win back those suburban moms. Um, I think uh, the way that he wins is uh, white working class voters who, for example, voted for Obama twice and then flipped in 2016 in the key states. I think that's it. You just got to win back to, the Rust Belt he's again. Hundred percent. He's, he's, he's got to get. He's got to get Iowa, union union guys with high school degrees from Wisconsin, Michigan, to believe again and to show up for him. He does that. I think he can flip enough votes to do it. If he can do the suburban soccer mom thing, I mean, then he's definitely going to win. What about uh, DeSantis? If I were advising DeSantis, so let's go back. This is the primary advice. I think DeSantis has to go balls to the wall, and I think he has to, you know, they just announced that Fox News is going to have the first debate in August in Milwaukee, I think. It's going to be on Rumble as well. This August. This, uh, Yeah, this August. It'll be the first debate. Um, I think that DeSantis has to say on the stage, you lost to Joe Biden. You got your ass kicked by the worst president that any of us have ever lived through. He's a joke. You lost to him. Call out Trump directly. And he has to say, and if you're the nominee, you will lose to him again. And DeSantis has to say, not only will I not lose to him, I will kick his ass. So if you want a president who is a Republican, by the way, you could have me for eight years instead of four with Trump. I think he has to go ball. You can't tiptoe up to it. Wow. because. And here's my thesis on that. If he says that to Trump, I think Trump, being called a loser, will be so furious about the fact that he gets called a loser that Trump will go back into his, they stole the election, this is why I lost. And I think that doesn't have the same resonance. And I think a lot of people mm-hmm. want to win so badly. DeSantis's play is... I'm an electable version of Trump. I will be a more disciplined version of him. You saw the way that I responded to COVID. Uh, I didn't you know, defer to Dr. Anthony Fauci and everybody else as long as Trump did. I think he has to go right after him. Because here's what I'll say. Trump is way better in individual. Like if Trump, if you had Trump and DeSantis in this room right now, or just to meet all your staff out there, mm-hmm. I think people would be like, Holy cow, Trump is amazing on the just grip and grin, the shake, the the individual interaction. I don't think DeSantis has that same 
charisma. Yeah, why would he? Trump's been an, uh, an icon for 40 years, 50 he years. He spent his whole Santa's, life. He spent his whole life exactly. shaking hands and chatting with his people. His daughter went to yeah. a prom with, uh, with, yeah. with our friend Buck over here. That's a big deal. So I think, it's you know, <laughs> the Iowa and New Hampshire thing that will surprise people is Trump's really good going into McDonald's and, like, shaking hands and kissing babies. I'm not sure DeSantis is going to be. Mm-hmm. But and that's a risky proposition for DeSantis, by the way, because if you go all in after Trump in 24 and he loses, how does that impact things in 28? Will people remember that and for be DeSantis? angry? Yeah. Can you even yeah. look, think that? you got to go six years no, in the I future? Think, so but I think sometimes people don't You kind of got to go with what's right in front of your they face They don't now. go balls to the wall because they're worried about the future. If he wants to win, he has to like basically burn the ships behind him and say this is it. So I, I think that it, it depends on the Trump approach to dealing with DeSantis once he gets in, which I think is likely to be, based on what we've seen so far, just total scorched earth, although... I do know some people who are in Trump world who are saying they're a little surprised that some of the they're so used to Trump insults just crushing people. Right. Like little Marco and low energy Jeb and, you know, go down the list. Right. Crooked, crooked Hillary, crooked Hillary yeah. probably yeah. the best. Yeah. I mean, that that yeah. one line might have won him the 2016 election. He's so good at that. But even ardent Trump supporters and voters, when he says, Florida's always been great. Ron DeSantis didn't do a good job. They go, ooh, wait, no, 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 no. Like, that's not that's not a thing, you know? There are other things maybe you could say or criticize or go after him on, but saying that Ron wasn't good during COVID, some of that starts to feel like he's insulting the intelligence of the people who support him the most um, and people like me who voted for him twice. You got to say things. You know, they're going to hit each other, right? But it's got to be a clean fight in the sense that, you know, I, I know it's going to be tough, but it's got to be a clean fight in the sense that it has to be based in some form. Of so you reality. guys are part of the camp that you believe Trump doesn't beat Biden, but you believe DeSantis could beat uh, Biden direct. That's not I think Trump to go back to your point. If I were advising Trump, I would say start running the general election now because I think he minimizes himself when he goes after DeSantis. What I had hoped Trump was going to say in Mar-a-Lago right after he got indicted. Uh, and had to appear for the arraignment. I wish he had said, it's time for all Republicans to come together. I won't say a single negative word about Ron DeSantis. I'm focused on Biden. He's the enemy. Yeah, he elevates himself, and and he wins. That's the way I see uh, it. You know there's no chance he's going down there. No, road. but he should. You know that. I, I think that's, he the, should. <laughs> that's the way that, that's that he true. could win. My concern is, you guys watch Game of Thrones? Back in the day. Yeah, like 10 years ago. You didn't watch Game of Thrones? No. Oh, my God. He's watched one show, House of Cards. That was it, right? <laughs> That's it. Wow. Game of Thrones. So Game of Thrones, we've talked about this on the show. You have trial by combat. The benefit that Republicans have right now is you know who your combatant is. In theory, it's Joe Biden. He's a shitty fighter. He should get his ass kicked. Um, my concern is if Democrats can pick their opponent, they're trying to put Trump in the ring against Biden because they think they can beat Trump. Um and so Trump has to be more sophisticated than he was in 16 and 20 to win. And I feel like so many people, to Buck's point, have a preconceived conclusion of, of Trump. I think DeSantis would smoke Joe Biden.